Our scripture lesson today comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. We are continuing today in our semester-long series on the book of Revelation, entitled Famous Last Words. And what we've been seeing so far in this series, hopefully you've been seeing that this, uh, this cryptic, this so often misunderstood book is actually, there's great comfort, there's great hope uh, for the church and the world today. Because to remind you, the purpose of the book of Revelation is not to provide wild predictions about the future. Uh, I know we're all disappointed by that, uh, but that is not what this is about. It's, it's about providing pastoral comfort to the suffering church in the present by giving them just a glimpse of how history is unfolding from the perspective of heaven, from God's perspective in heaven. The Apostle John, the author of this book, he's invited back behind the veil of heaven, and it's like he's holding open the veil for us to look in and see as well so that we can learn to see our circumstances on earth in light of the realities of heaven. That is a gift to the church. This book is written in symbolic form, not literal form. And the main symbol, to catch you up on where we are so far, the main symbol that was before us in the last chapter, chapter 5, was the symbol of a scroll. If you remember, John is invited behind the veil into the worship of heaven that's going on even now. And at the center of heaven is the throne where God sits. And in his right hand is a scroll that's been sealed with seven seals. This scroll symbolizes the eternal purposes of God for the whole creation. On this scroll is written God's good plan to redeem the world from sin and misery. But there's a problem. The problem is that the scroll is sealed with seven seals. This is like the kind of sticky wax used in the ancient world and even sometimes today to seal up documents. There's seven of them. 
This symbolizes the forces that are trying to keep the plan of God from happening, to keep that scroll sealed up tight. So what one commentator says, the meaning is this. The closed scroll indicates the plan of God unrevealed and unexecuted. If the scroll remains sealed, God's purposes are not realized. And that's why in the last chapter, John was weeping. Even in heaven, John was weeping. Apparently, there are tears in heaven, Mr. Clapton. Not really, but maybe. You guys know that song? You're not too young, are you? Okay, good. This guy scared me for a second. Now, guys, John is weeping at the very thought that God's redemptive plan might not come to be somehow. The scroll is sealed, and there's no one in heaven or on, on earth or under the earth who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. And that's why all of us should weep. If God's plan is somehow not worked out. Brothers and sisters, John's weeping is turned to joy. Because at last, at last, there's found only one who is worthy. He's the Lion of Judah. He's the Lamb who was slain. He's the only one who is able to break the seals and open the scroll. What that means is in Jesus, in Jesus, the eternal redemptive plan of God will be revealed. It will be realized. Through Jesus, God's plan for the whole creation will come to be. There's nothing that will be able to stop it. And at that, there is great rejoicing in heaven. And that's where we ended chapter 5. Today, we actually pick up chapters 6 and 7 together. Because what we're seeing now is the seven seals are beginning to be opened so that the scroll can be opened. The Lamb of God, he's the only one worthy to open the seals, and so he starts to, one by one. And this starts, this starts a cycle of sevens in the book of Revelation. There's the seven seals in chapters 6 through 8. There's the seven trumpets in chapters 8 through 11. There's the seven bowls in chapter 16. And again, so much energy has been exhausted on trying to interpret these cycles of seven and to attach ancient and modern historical events to it, as if Revelation is giving us some chronology of how the end of the world will happen. And it's just exhausting. And that's not at all what's happening here. Instead, what's happening, I think we are seeing different symbolic angles onto the same story. The same story that will define all of history between Christ's first and second coming. And that is this battle between good and evil, between God and Satan. The war between God's plan of redemption through Christ being worked out and the evil forces that are viciously opposing it. It's like a movie. Anybody, any of you seen a movie where the same story is seen but through like three different characters or something like that? I love those movies. Every time you're, the, a different angle enhances your understanding of the story. That's what's happening in these cycle of sevens. Now, actually, I think it's best to approach the seven seals as a whole in order to get this full picture. So even though we only read from chapter seven, I'm actually going to cover a chapter six and seven today as a whole. Okay, so where we are, we're still... Within John's vision of heaven, the scroll represents the eternal plan of God. The seals represent the forces that are trying to thwart God's plan. And the lamb is the only one worthy to open the seals, that is to overcome these forces and execute the plan of God. And in chapter 6, the first four seals are opened, which are the infamous four horsemen of the apocalypse. You guys heard of this? They come out, they come out riding on different colored horses like some sort of like twisted dark version of medieval times, the dinner show. You guys been to that? <laughs> yeah. I always cheer for the green knight. I don't know why. 
some good times growing up in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, where we go to medieval times. No, uh, there's some humor, but these are these, this is heavy stuff. The first horse comes riding. He's a white horse, and he represents conquest. The rider represents the earthly rulers who seek to conquer others, to claim power for themselves. The second one is a red horse of war, whose rider comes to take peace from the earth, to turn nation against nation, people against people, and bloody violence. The third is a black horse of famine, whose rider represents these, the unjust scale of e economic oppression that happens in famine. The poor are gouged for just basic necessities while the rich continue to enjoy their luxuries. And the fourth is the pale horse of death, who is followed close behind by Hades. Death and Hades, this dreadful combination which represents the ultimate end to which tyrants, sword, famine, and pestilence lead. That is a ticket to the place of the dead. Yes, as you see this unfolding, what's, what it's doing is it's introducing a tension into the text for us. The tension is that even while God is sitting on his throne in heaven, these evil forces, conquest, war, famine, and death, they are roaming and they are ravaging the earth. How can this be? If God is on his throne, how can these realities coexist? And friends, that is surely the tension that the original churches to whom Revelation was written are wrestling with. They're feeling this acutely. They're saying if the gospel is true, if Christ has died and Christ has risen and Christ will come again, if the kingdom of God has been inaugurated on earth, then why, oh why, is there still so much suffering? Why are we being thrown into Roman prisons? or put on Roman crosses, or led into Roman Colosseums to die. In fact, the fifth seal, after these first four, is a symbol of the awful persecution against Christians in particular. For the martyrs cry out, how long, O Lord? How long until you fix this? You feel it, right? The church has had to wonder. If God is on the throne in heaven, then why is there so much suffering in the world? And especially for God's people in the world. It's a tension for us too, isn't it? Remember, these seals are forces that are trying to stop the plan of God from happening, or at least trying to get anyone from believing that the story is really true. And what greater barrier is that for us? What greater barrier is there for believing in the power and the goodness of God and his good plan for the world than the vast evidences of suffering in the world? Often in the forms of conquest, war, famine, As I speak, there's a conqueror trying to take over his neighboring country. Did Revelation predict Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine? No. Revelation is saying that until Jesus comes again, there will always be the Putins of the world, tyrants who use weapons of violence to conquer others and to enhance their crowd. Conquest is literally happening right now. As I speak, some statisticians report more than one million deaths in the U.S. alone since the beginning of the pandemic. One million of our sons, daughters, friends, co-workers, parents or grandparents dead because of pestilence. As I speak, a group called Open Doors USA 
says that more than 360 million Christians worldwide, that's one in seven, are suffering high levels of discrimination and persecution. The most vulnerable of which being Christian women in places like Afghanistan, North Korea, and Nigeria. Christians who die for their faith are up 24% globally. This is the tension, right? God is on his throne, and the world still suffers. Christians still suffer. How can this be? What do we do with this tension? Well, first, it's, it's just good and healthy to acknowledge it, to be honest about it, because the Bible is honest about it. Because the Bible does not give us platitudes or cliches about suffering and evil. It says what's true. It tells us what's true. Like Even right in the middle of this glorious vision of heaven, Revelation turns its gaze back to the suffering on earth. Why? Because that's where the church is. Wondering how this vision translates into the experience of daily life in this broken and hurting world. Eugene Peterson in his book on Revelation says, the question every person of faith must face is, do God's love and redemption work in this history in which I live? In other words, it's nice that this wonderful stuff is happening up in heaven. What does it mean for life on earth? What does it mean for here? And the Bible does not gloss over this tension. It names it in all its hideousness. Conquest, war, famine, death, persecution. It names it. Every facet of human suffering is acknowledged and accounted for. Which I think is God's way of saying, I see you. I see your suffering. I do not shut my eyes to it. I take it all in. I take it all into my heart of infinite mercy. Brothers and sisters, the Bible is honest about suffering, so we can be too. And it gives us the language by which we process our suffering before God. That is the language of lament. And the Bible is full of it. Roughly 40% of the Psalms our lament. As one writer says, the Bible doesn't give us an answer to the problem of evil. It gives us lament. So it's just good that even in this chapter, even in the glories of heaven, we stop and we acknowledge the suffering and the pain and the evil of the world. Yes, we acknowledge it, but secondly, we entrust justice to God. Because God promises to not only acknowledge it, but to do something about it. The sixth seal is a promise that God will one day take justice into his own hands. He will come and he will shake the earth. And there are all these symbols of creation being unhinged from its very order, like the sun no longer shining, the stars fall from the heavens, the sky is rolled up like a scroll. You see, God sees and he will come to judge. He will come to put everything back in order again. And chapter 6 says this will be terrifying for the perpetrators of evil. Listen how chapter 6 ends. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. 
the great day of their wrath has come, who can stand? Who can stand? That's the question. That's the last word of chapter 6. When God comes to right all wrongs, who will be able to stand before his throne of justice? Brothers and sisters, that's not just a question for the tyrants of the earth. It's a question for every single human being. Who can stand before the face of God? Who can stand? Who can save us from the holy, just, and perfect wrath of the Lamb for all the evil that has mangled and maimed his good creation? He is good and right to judge this evil. But who can stand? Can you stand? Can I stand? Maybe you haven't taken up the sword to conquer your neighbor. But I bet you've used more subtle weapons to step over your coworkers, to end up where you want to be, on top. Maybe you haven't killed your neighbor in war, but I bet you've hated him in your heart. And Jesus says, this is the very seed of murder living in you. Maybe you haven't gouged your neighbor during a famine, but every one of us has taken from our neighbor what doesn't belong to us. Their bodies, their reputation, their dignity. And every one of us has withheld from our neighbors what does belong to them, especially compassion and provision for the poor. Brothers and sisters, death and Hades are only here roaming the earth because we opened the door and let them in to God's good creation. Because every one of us turned away from our creator in order to go our own way. And the result is death. See, friends, the evil's not just out there. It's right here in every human heart. So good news, God's going to take justice in his hands. But bad news, can you stand when he does? Can anyone stand? Anything will be better than standing unsheltered before the holy justice of God. Brothers and sisters, this is what makes verse 9 of chapter 7 so powerful. Because what does John see next? Look at verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and language. What are they doing? Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. The question was, who can stand on the day of judgment? And here's the answer. A great multinational multilingual people that no one can count standing before the throne. They're clothed in white robes, which means they are pure of any sin or any evil that has ravaged the earth and incited God's judgment. It's not in them. They have palm branches in their hands, which is a sign that they have conquered. They have overcome the evil forces of the world, and they stand victorious in the end. How in the world did this come about? Who can stand to millions standing before God? Well, two reasons if we look back. Number one, because of the sovereignty of God. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Most commentators believe that the four winds are referring, are referring back to the four horsemen of the previous chapter. The evil forces of conquest, war, famine, and death, what are they? They are ultimately held back by God. 
and his army of angels. Four angels from the four corners of the earth. This is a way of saying the whole earth, every square inch of it, they are holding back the forces of evil. Brothers and sisters, when you look behind the veil of suffering, what you see is that suffering is ultimately held in check by God. Evil is powerful, but it is not all powerful. It is restrained by the God of the universe. Chapter 6 and 7 are, are showing us over and over and over again that God is so, somehow even sovereign over evil. He takes it and he uses it for his purposes instead. He takes it and he works it out, everything, for our good, somehow. These eternal plans contained in the scroll, they will be worked out that no evil forces can overcome them. But this, is, this isn't an answer. There is still great mystery and suffering, but how comforting it is to know that evil is not ultimately in control. As we sang earlier, this is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems also strong, God is the ruler yet. That's how it came about, because God is sovereign. But secondly, because of the sealing of the saints. Why are the angels holding back the forces of evil? So that verse 2 can happen. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. What is this? Like those seals on the scrolls? This is like the wax that was sealed with the king's signet ring as a mark of ownership. As if to say, this, whatever this is, the seal with this ring belongs to me. So the saints are to be sealed from all this evil to show that they belong to God. What is the seal? Well, listen to Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, you tell me. The Apostle Paul writes, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. What is the seal? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, which is pictured in your very baptism. This water is poured upon your forehead. It's a sign of the pouring out of the Spirit, which marks you and claims you as God's very own. What does this mean? It means that just like the blood of the lamb, mark those who belong to God so the angel of death passed over them in Exodus. So the spirit marks those who belong to God so the wrath of the lamb passes over them. They can stand in the end because they've been washed by the blood of the lamb. All their sin, all their evil has been atoned for and they can stand without fear. Friends, it doesn't mean that we won't suffer in this world. But it does mean that God, the seal means that God will preserve you with a faith that will endure to the end. He will hold you fast. He will help you. He will uphold you. He will cause you to stand until the palm branch is in your hand, the palm branch of victory. And who will be sealed? Verse 4 says 144,000. You're waiting on me to get into that, weren't you? Yeah, we were all wondering. We're going to get there. 
Now's the time. Again, much harm has been done to this text. It does not refer to ethnic Jews. It does not refer to only a remnant of believers, thank God. It's a symbolic way of saying the whole people of God in all times and in all places. Twelve times twelve. As the whole people of God times a thousand equals a, an image of the completeness of the people of God. Not one is missing. Everyone is represented. In fact, the text itself interprets the 144,000. Remember, John heard the number, and then he looks, and what does he see? A great multitude that no one can number from every nation, tribe, people, and language. This is the church of all generations who have been sealed by the Spirit of God, which is a guarantee that they will come through the tribulation of this world. In this world of evil and sin, they will come through to the inheritance that awaits them. A new heavens, a new earth. The complete presence of God. The complete absence of sin. The complete renewal of all things. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you today, if you have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, if you have believed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, then you are sealed by the Spirit of God. Which means that whatever tribulation that you are going through right now, whatever tribulation you will go through in this life, the Lord will bring you through. The promises of verse 15 to 17 are yours. Listen to this. Therefore, there they are before the throne of God. And they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence, even now. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Finally, what are these sealed saints doing as they stand on that day? They're singing. Verse 10. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and the Lamb. And the angels join in and the elders join in and the four living creatures and they all fall on their faces before the throne and worship God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, they will sing. And they're inviting the church on earth, you and I, to sing with them now in anticipation of the end of all things. How do we make our way through the suffering and tribulation of this earth? We sing. We sing our way through it. Eugene Peterson remarks in his book that we have moved from the most frightening representation of evil in chapter 6 to the most extravagant praise of chapter 7. And Christians sing their way from evil to hope. Peterson says Christians sing. They sing in the desert. They sing in the night. They sing in prison. They sing in the storm. This is how we respond to the evil of the world. Perhaps by now you have seen this video on social media of Christians in Ukraine gathered in their home singing. Singing the hymn we sang earlier in this service, He Will Hold Me Fast. 
while their city is literally being shelled outside. How precious these words must be to them right now. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. He will not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Friends, this is there, the living embodiment of a line from one of my favorite hymns, which says, faith can sing through days of sorrow. Faith can sing through days of sorrow. May they encourage us today to sing through our sorrows until the day when sorrows will be no more. A day that is guaranteed for those who have been sealed by God. Amen. Let me pray for us and ask God to help us. Father, as we live in this tension of you sitting on your throne and yet seeing so much of the sufferings in the world and in our own lives, but we feel it, thank you that you take us there. You talk about it, you address it. Lord, thank you that you lead us to the hope. That our hope is not in ourselves, but our hope in life and in death is that we belong to you, our faithful Savior. Lord, thank you for calling us to yourself. Thank you for sealing us with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray you would help us to endure every tribulation and give us the hope that one day we will be in your very presence and you will wipe every tear from our eyes. Lord, until that day, fill our mouths with a song. We would sing our way, that our faith would sing even through days of sorrow. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.